Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted with the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, learned about the early days of the internet, and discussed making it in the music biz. All this plus a new season of Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for the week of December 13, 2019. The Klonsky brothers spoke to CTU President Jesse Sharkey about the recent 11-day teacher strike that paralyzed Chicago. The contract the teachers gained in the aftermath is viewed as historic, but why did the teachers challenge a new mayor who had echoed so many of their progressive demands? Hitting left airs Fridays at 1. It's a really important point, which is that uh, you've got a set of school policies which are dressed up with kind of technocratic neutrality. They're saying we're letting kids into highly resourced, uh, excellent schools based on test scores. And what that leaves out is that the high-stakes tests themselves are, are highly racially discriminatory and, and tend to reproduce results. I mean, if, you're, if your parents are well-educated and, and wealthy, then lo and behold, that's who winds up coming to a set of schools. And students are right to be protesting about it, and we have to try to build that protest movement. And, I, and, and it's a sign that we have to get our, our, um, our sights wider in the society and, and start seeing ways in which inequality and discrimination come into our school systems. They're leaking in from society. Uh, it's, there are a series of big social issues that are playing out in school. So I'm glad we're talking about it. It's, it's well, important. Can we issues. talk about it in the context of, uh, of, of the strike and the, and the, pro- right. and the negotiating uh, process? Because uh, I know you all kind of framed – the, the negotiation in this kind of larger con- larger uh, larger context, uh, and in some ways I was I, I was kind of confused uh, by based, mainly based on my own ex- experience, uh, because I, I uh, I've always advocated as you as you all have uh, that our unions uh, have to play a much larger role in the fight for social justice and against uh, the, the kind of racial discrimination and uh, racism that you were that you were just talking about. And I, but I, I, the difficulty was in 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 in, my, in trying to wrap my head around the idea of uh, of bargaining that. Uh, and maybe you can can you talk about that some about how you conceptualize bargaining a contract in terms of those kinds of issues. Well, wait, but, but before we get to that, Fred, <laughs> I, a, a lot of a lot of people. I want to I want to definitely talk about that. Uh, but a lot of people don't know much about you. Jesse. Sure. And so I, I wanted to start at least by uh, getting you to kind of introduce yourself in a, and talk about your That's background. That's why he's in charge of the show, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm not in, in charge, but I'm just, this is my opinion about how we should proceed. And if you don't like it, you well, can. He's, he's offering me, it, Mike's offering me a chance to talk about myself. So I'm going to take that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Like uh, you, you were, you were a, uh, a public school teacher. That's right. Where, in Providence? I taught for a year in Providence and um, got engaged, moved to Chicago. I uh, taught at Chicago Vocational, which is a, a, a big vocational school um, off the highway. People drive by it. It's a two million square foot facility, uh, an all-black school. Then it used to be a, 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 a munitions Navy. factory or something like that? Yeah, it was a Navy training facility. Yeah. They built it right after the war. You know, that was a trip. Uh, you know, it gave me a real kind of introduction to reality of Chicago. I, I think my first year there, uh, there were something like 52 false fire alarms at the school. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a place where I had to 
take you know some of my highfalutin ideas about education reform and and the way that worked and get it in line with the reality of a big urban public school system real quick. Um, I also the other thing that happened to me there is that my first year teaching, I had a brain hemorrhage and came very close to dying, and um, was out. You know, I think it happened in, in March, in early March, and I was out for the rest of that school year. Um, when I came back the next year, I was partly paralyzed. Um, you know, had had lost half my head of hair. I got them in the back half of my head um, from all the treatments, and you know, I must have looked like Lurch. <laughs> and and uh, that was a people really reached out and embraced me and helped me get through that. And and it was it, it, it sort of highlighted to me there's this interesting kind of dual nature to what it means to work in a public school system. Were you a union activist at the time when you were teaching? Yeah, I had taught. Um, uh, for a year in Providence, but before, before that, I had been a union organizer for a couple of years. I, I worked for both the Steelworkers Union and 1199. Uh, you know, I'm a socialist and a person who you know come out of a particular kind of political tradition. Uh, you know, I always sort of saw that as being um, a strength. You know, as opposed to a liability that I needed to hide. So um, yeah, I gravitated towards union activism, but then I had to recover and, and get over this kind of. And when did you become a? When did thing. you become like a, a full-time CTU activist? Well, you know, I was a, an associate delegate. Um, you know, which means that there was a head delegate, a person uh, who you know had been elected, but then I was also elected to help do union uh, functions at the school. And so starting in 98, I've been part of the, the, the union's House of Delegates. It's the big governing body of the CTU. Every school elects someone uh, or a group of people if it's a big school. And so starting in 98, and then um, in 01, I moved schools. And when I, when I did that, I sort of quickly became a head delegate. So starting then, I, I started spending more time doing CTU work. And, um, and then in 04, there was an attempt, in, there was a program in, in Chicago called the Renaissance 2010 Initiative, which was an attempt to um, basically close a bunch of traditional schools and reopen them as charter schools or performance schools. And, um, and my that, school that was, was one when of the, Paul Vallis was the uh, right. CEO of the And school. Daly was the mayor. Daly. Well, no, it's actually, it, it's the initiative itself. So Daly was the mayor. Um, wasn't Daly, I was the mayor. <laughs> um, but the, uh, actually it was, it was, um, Arnie Duncan. Duncan, yeah, yeah, came in. It was post That's yeah. right. And, um, you know, it turned out my school was one of the very first ones they picked. And so I found myself, something I'd been reading about and trying to understand as a privatization attempt, I'm suddenly right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, my school had morale. It was, a, it, was a, uh, it was a thriving school in a lot of ways. And, and we organized and fought. And that's one of the ways I think I found myself more in the middle of, of union activity. And then you came in uh, to leadership with the core uh, Yeah, and then, and then I was part of a group of, small group of people who formed a, a caucus called the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators in 08. And uh, we ran for office. And, and frankly, wouldn't have won, I don't think, uh, except that the, the uh, established group, the old guard, if you will, uh, had a split. And that split uh, you know, enabled us to get enough support to win an election. Chicago elections are won. <laughs> right, I suppose so, right. <laughs> uh, uh, and and anyway, I was Karen's vice president. And then uh, when when uh, Karen Karen who be, uh, uh, was an iconic uh, figure, you know, uh, uh, and would have probably be would have probably been mayor had she run. Uh, you uh, when she got ill, you kind of ha- had to move into that uh, position even as a temporary uh, person until the next election. What, how was that? How was doing that? I mean, how much pressure was there on, 
on you to try to replace somebody like Karen? That was hard. It, it, it was just, uh, it was physically and emotionally trying. Um, you know, I love Karen and um, have, you know, just have a tremendous amount of respect for the things that she can do, the things that she makes look so easy that aren't easy at all. Um, you know, she can say no to people with a kind of firmness but with love that keeps them on the team. Um, trying to keep a, a union of 25,000 people aligned and kind of pointing in the same direction and, and sort of um, and, and pulling together, so to speak, is uh, it, she made it look really easy, and it's not. So uh, I've tried to learn a lot from her, and um, and that's it's certainly been a, a you know the work of my life, the challenge of my life. Yeah. All right, that's enough about you, Jess. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now uh, you did ask. So <laughs> no, no, I, I'm glad you did that. Uh, uh, you know, a lot uh, a lot of our listeners aren't as familiar with you or the CTU or the strike as people in Chicago sure. are. And so, uh, but now let's let's talk about the, uh, the negotiation and the strike. Uh, um, first of all, I mean, I, I just wanna start off by congratulating you and uh, CTU members um, and all of us supporters. Uh, Fred and I were both, both spent time uh, walking on the picket line, uh, uh, you know, on a struggle that was well fought and uh, lots of uh, personal sacrifice was involved how do you uh looking back now uh what a month or so later how do you uh how do you sum up that experience well i i think that you hit the first thing dead on which is that it was a um that was a big group effort and that was something that looked like a movement in the city a movement for educational justice um you know obviously uh 22,000 teachers and educational workers being off the job was important um but, you know, this is a movement that's much bigger than just that. And this is students. Um, these are community activists that have a long history in Chicago, as you guys are part of and well aware. Um, these were people who did um, work on immigrant, immigrants' rights. I mean, there are a lot of folks whose aspirations got bound up. And, and if, if I can digress for a minute on this point, I'm just tell an interesting story. Um, during the strike, the count of the ratification vote, um, which was on you know, – couple weeks ago in, in mid-November, um, I went to a, a, a youth-organized art show, um, AAAJ, the Asian Americans Advancing Justice, and they have got a youth group. Um, and uh, this student who I'd never met, and, and this is a group that I'm not, you know, I don't, don't have a super close relationship with, um, gave a speech in which they talked about three years ago, they had started raising with teachers the importance of sanctuary schools demands demands that would defend immigrant students from ICE and would give rights inside the schools for immigrant students. And they raised this with teachers. They were asked to go talk to a union committee. Their organization had an orientation on teachers to try to get teachers to adopt this as a demand. And the fact that that was language that we won in the contract, they viewed as a victory for themselves. I mean, obviously, it was tied up in our negotiations, and it was an issue that we cared about you know, independent of students' activism. But I don't know for sure if that would have been had the same priority and would have wound up in the final mix if, if there were a group of students that didn't take that issue on. And it was just remarkable to me to see 
you know, th- their pride of achievement and something which had been part of that strike and that contract negotiation. Um, because they, you know, it was a, a product of years of work for them, and they saw it as a successful sign of, of their own activism and, and, and advocacy. So, that, that, you know, writ large, that's what was happening. What Adcock chatted with Scott Samuel, an internet pioneer who created the early chat network Speakeasy and designed the backend for eBay. Samuel chatted about the freewheeling early years of IRC with his own God Country server, smoking dope with Elon Musk, and the future of Chicago tech. Tech Scene Chicago airs every Friday at 1. Please welcome to our studio, Scott Samuel. Scott, welcome to Tech Scene Chicago. Thank you, Melanie, and welcome. This is the first time I'm going to go live on any kind of radio or television in 25 years. That's great. Well, um, well, we can go ahead and dive in here and get started. You have, have been a, a pioneer and early adopter of Internet technology since the 80s. Uh, what was cool in the geek world back then and, and when you were first starting out? Back in 1984, 85, Internet communication was something no one understood. I have a newspaper article from our local paper dated 1985 where the word chat is in air quotes because no one knew what texting was. It was real, it was human, it was anonymous, and what you said was on a computer and then it vanished off the screen. It had a different dimension. You could communicate with people. It was a communication medium. And it really was a defense department project that the kids got a hold of in 1980. I was a user of the first bulletin board, Warden Randy's, and I put my first bulletin board up in 1981. In 1984, I commissioned a young man to... (laughs) make it so I could put six more Apple cap modems in my Apple II, and Mm -hmm. I am literally considered the godfather of all social networking, credited as such by folks like Reed Hoffman. Um, I've worked with Peter, I've worked with Mark Cuban, he called me on the phone, I did his metrics, but that's not the early days, those are the late days. The early days, it was human. Mm-hmm. It was about you. It wasn't about the tech, it was about the people, and that's what the internet's truly made of. Great. And well, now tell us about the speakeasy technology that you were running back then. What what was it and, and how exactly did it work? It was an Apple II computer and there was a piece mm-hmm. of software called Diversidial that didn't network that has allowed multiple people to call in. I had this young man, his name is Brian Dunn, I haven't mentioned his name in 25 years, create a soft piece of software called Muser, which allowed for multitasking and multi-users that would allow seven people to call and chat simultaneously and connect to another Muser system that would allow seven people, thereby creating the first social network. What also the most important thing that we did is we all got together face-to-face back then. That is, we got online and then we met offline. Mm-hmm. It was real. It was human. It wasn't about the technology. The software was truly private. 
Um, one of the more interesting things is we realized early on is that there were some pretty strange people on the internet that would be disingenuous and hence I put caller ID boxes on all these lines and I would voice verify users. Not that it would, I just didn't want things like fakes, like mm -hmm. fake news. Mm -hmm, exactly. Back in the 80s. Yeah, even back then. Well, and this, the, these were the days of pre-DSL technology, and, and it was before the Internet had really hit the this mainstream was the, these, were the, these were the days when I walked into a plit theater, saw the movie War Games, and I thought, wow, they're making a movie about us because there were about 400 of us total. These were 55 baud 110. The modems I was using on the, the speakeasy system and that ran the DDAL so software were 300 baud. Mm -hmm. 50 so, pre-DSL, <laughs> mm -hmm. this was landline still. Oh, you, you could whistle a carrier tone. If you press the five key, you could connect to any modem on a phone. Um, these are the days of black boxing and blue boxing when Steve and Steve were sitting around in the garage still mm -hmm. and creating the Apple. I remember when first heard hearing the name Steve Jobs mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. I had an Apple II and I had an Apple II plus um, it's this is the beginning of computing exactly well, and the beginning of online social which was so completely different it was so human mm -hmm. it was so real it wasn't a swipe it wasn't a click it wasn't just a we didn't live through in a scroll through world mm -hmm. we communicated that's yeah it's very different now and and so now back then um, it, did why did you name your online chat server um, God's Country? That was a, a uh, well, one of the questions I wanted to I ask. I believe you. that everybody, however they see the world, at the end of the day, their faith is their center. But I tell everybody, and I told everybody back then, that I took it off an old-style beers coaster. So take your pick as to why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and um, and that's good. So I, I was curious about that. Well, how did people use it? They would dial with their 300 baud modem or 1200 baud modem, those were the new ones, and their Apple computer or their Commodore computer, and dial, at that time, the number was 312-964-5281. Uh, it would hit you into a 36 junction box bell sequence like it would be in a business, and it would send you a hunt line and from line one to line two to line three to line four, and you would connect via your modem and your personal computer to my computer, which was the master. Mm. Okay. Well, that's a very interesting. Well, and then, and so now you grew up in Chicago, the Chicagoland area. Born and, and bred. Yeah, and there, and there Western were, Burbs. yeah, and there, there were pockets of people in the Chicagoland area back then who were obsessed with internet in the early days. Um, or any of those people? It began here. Our, yeah. our, uh, I want her to meet, be our director of social media. She's a young lady, um, wonderful woman. Her name is Julia. Um, mm -hmm. She's one of the first women online. I want her to write me to me second a book, but she's not willing to do it. Yes, there's still some folks around. Yeah. Um, a lot of folks have gone into technology. Um, this thing that I really like to talk about, um, I have a... I adopted a young man in um, the 90s because of the social media, and he's the CTO of a public tech company or a, a tech company out west now. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks that were there, one of their original users invented Scrollback, mm. um, the whole concept of it. Um, my memories are, are unreal uh, mm -hmm. because we were there at the beginning, and we'd sit around in the 80s and talk about how the modem world was going to take over the real world, and no one knew it yet, mm -hmm. and everybody said we were nuts. <laughs> 
you know, well, okay. definitely, uh, who's nuts now, right? <laughs> well, the world went nuts because the modem world took over the real world and drove a lot of people crazy because we've turned it into a scroll through a world where validation is a swipe or a like or a click, and that is supposed to be communication, and it's not. Mm-hmm. I frightens me nonstop when you ask a young person, 18 to 20 years old, what they want to be when they grow up, because you no longer hear pro athlete or CEO or any of the other elite jobs. What you hear is, I want to be famous. Mm. It's I dangerous, to, isn't it? I go to bed at night terrified just because I know that a lot of school teachers spent more time fishing for validation for pictures of their lunch than they did reading the books. I see young people talk in emojis. I see Gen Y have a fatalistic view on the world and feel that they have no friends even though they're more open and more connected. We forgot the people. You must talk about the people. You must focus on the people. The hell with the data. The data doesn't do it. The, you can turn the people into data, but you cannot forget about the people. Mm-hmm. They're human beings. The Internet's made of us. Right. Well, and so, so you talked about this early group of people who, who said all these things and people thought you were nuts. Well, one of the things I really wanted to ask you, in your opinion, what do you think is the appropriate mindset for early adopters of technology in general? Focus on the human being. Focus mm-hmm. on the user. Less focus on your product, more focus on the people who are going to use it. Line them up first. Mm-hmm. Get to know your space. Don't think you've got the next great idea. Everybody's got the next great idea. What you have is the same thing they have. Six seconds to pay attention. They don't care. They've got their own problems. Make sure you have your network built. Don't build a product. Build a company. You build a house. You don't just throw something up. You start with the foundation. Mm-hmm. Same thing. You're all sitting there. I run into company after company out here. And it's not a knock on them in any way, shape, or form that is so focused on their one piece of of technology. It's like a lottery ticket, yet, and and they're all expecting some big-ass exit, Mm -hmm. and it's not true, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, People buy people. Mm -hmm. They, They buy traction. They buy results. You have to have a structure. You can't out, you cannot approach the entrepreneurial world from, I'm gonna get rich. You have to approach it from the angle of, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to do something. I'm going to, I'm going to solve a problem mm-hmm. for everybody, mm-hmm. okay? And your price point can't be your focus, mm-hmm. all right? We are so focused on trying to sell everybody something out here that we have forgotten the fact that we're all human beings. Mm-hmm. Everybody yells at Facebook for the hate, except it's not Facebook doing anything. They're not saying a word. That's their problem. Everybody's yelling at everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fair, Internet's made of us. Fair point. Well, and, and now after seeing the Internet evolve into what it is and isn't today, um, has, has your mindset changed at all? Yes. What, uh, I go to bed each night asking myself, um, I can give you a specific step-by-step process as to what we did in the 90s with Honesty.com to make the viral um, effect take place. Um, we didn't call it viral then, we called it 10 to 1. Um, and I go to bed each night now knowing that children are running around looking for validation um, simply because we understood the hit counter originally de- delivered an endorphin hit, which is the exact thing the follower count does or the number of likes does. And had I had the vision of, when I started this stuff, I was focused only on Mm e-commerce. I left social media. I considered e-commerce to be the next step in evolution of social communication. People talk, people trade. Why would I want to sit around and just talk with my friends and strangers online when I can also pay my bills? 
It wasn't some idea where people wanted to be the CEO or you're going to make billions of dollars. That wasn't this at all. I didn't even want to be the CEO of my company. I thought executive producer would be a good name. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I wound up number 22 in the world in terms of global overall traffic. And Mark Cuban called me on the phone a week before and said, can I make his metrics? I didn't even know I was making metrics. <laughs> like your life depends on it. It's frozen, Kyle. It's frozen solid, Kyle. That's... Uh, we'll just have to slide our way there. Gee. We've uh, got to go back. It's like four degrees. Uh, this you, is, you got no gravel in your guts. This is just stupid yeah, and dangerous. We're helping like the environment, you understand? All right, set it up. Come on, We're venturing down Bubbly Creek to 35th Street to do some ice ditching. It's, it's way too cold for this. Ice ditching can only be performed in a deep freeze. We're now man up and shove up, please. We're sliding down a frozen river on a mattress strapped to six tires. It's a boat. It's a mattress. Today it's a boat. It's just... Whatever this is, it's it's wrong, man. Stop inside, Petrowski. What? It's a cell phone. Grab it. It looks like one of them smartphones. Yeah, right over there. Okay, got it. Got it. Here. Good. Here you go. I think that was a good time to remind our listeners that whatever we're doing this... It is not safe, and it should only be performed by professionals like us. And mutiny is also punishable by death, FYI. You want to sing songs? So what is ice stitching, and how does it help the environment? I mean, we don't have an auger, a tackle, no rod. That's right. We just have a 10-gallon bucket and a coal shovel and a bike sickle for some reason. Cut the sails, drop the anchor, we've made it. Uh, all right, which one of these is your make-believe anchor? Is it the shovel, the bucket, or the bike? The one with the chain on it, come on. The bike, okay, it's the bike. Take the bucket, Trotsky, I got this. Ice stitching is a scavenging technique, and it don't have nothing to do with no fishes, so don't think we're going to be fishing. On the banks of Bubbly Creek right here by 35th Street okay, are many hidden gems. These discoveries come in all forms. Such as the cell phone we just found. There you have it. I'm impressed and actually very relieved that right. you're so into the revitalization that's well, going on around here. Is there a website uh, where people can go to help uh, clear debris from the uh, probably, in and around Bubbly Creek? I, I mean, it's not really debris so much. What? What? I mean, well, the cell phone is worth something, at least useful. How is that not debris? We, I mean, we only pick up the valuable stuff, like the cell phone. Uh, you see, some people will throw stuff out the cars, like phones, cash, lighters, mixed CDs, suitcases, wallets, little bags of powder, wedding rings, all sorts of things that you could use or sell, you know what I mean? We're garbage picking? Ice ditching. What was that? For a high reward, there's always a high risk, John. That it's, was the creek belching from the ghost sheets of all the slaughtered animals that were dumped here back in Thank the day. Thank goodness it froze really thick. Oh, oh, Kyle. Oh, oh, grab my shovel. Ah, grab, oh, grab my man. shovel, Kyle. Oh. Oh, Kyle, st- Row after stand me. up. No, no, Row just stand up. Get your feet away. under it, Kyle. Oh, Come on. Gosh. Oh, no. I'm still sliding. What's going on? This hey. is very slippery. I'm going to head back to the co-pro. Why don't you use your treasures to call yourself a cab?
I'm out of here, man. That'd be nice if it would stay frozen all the time. That way you see nothing would sink into the creek. But uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. Back to John Daly and other morons over at What's It Called. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump is impeached on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of justice. Yet another investigation finds that, fancy that, Trump was wrong. Rudy visits Ukraine during the heat of the moment. Pelosi rolls Trump on NAFTA. The Steele dossier's author turns out to be pals with Ivanka. And Trump claims Jews don't love Israel enough. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 1050, December 5th. Nancy Pelosi instructed the chairman of the House to begin drafting impeachment articles against Trump. The move means that Trump will be charged with high crimes and misdemeanors before Christmas. Pelosi said it had become clear over the course of two months of investigation that Trump had violated his oath of office by pressing a foreign power for help in the 2020 election. Quote, the facts of Trump's wrongdoing involving Ukraine are uncontested. The president leaves us no choice but to act. In response, Trump accused Pelosi of having a nervous fit after a reporter asked if she hated Trump. James Rosen, a reporter for the pro-Trump network One America, yelled, quote, Do you hate the president at Pelosi? She responded tartly, quote, Don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani traveled to Europe to meet with several former Ukrainian prosecutors. Giuliani's visits with the same Ukrainians set up the impeachment inquiry in the first place. Giuliani is also awaiting indictment on charges. He violated lobbying laws. Trump asked the Supreme Court to suspend a subpoena to his accounting firm for his financial records. The new petition objecting to a subpoena from a House committee could be heard as soon as December 13th. If the court agrees to weigh in, it will probably issue a decision by June, and that will come in the midst of the final months of the presidential campaign. A witness in the Mueller investigation has been indicted on charges of conspiracy. George Nader was charged along with a Lebanese businessman named Ahmad Andy Khawaja as part of a 53-count indictment for attempting to secretly direct $3.5 million in campaign contribution to a Trump-aligned PAC. Nader had served as an intermediary to the United Arab Emirates and with the Trump campaign. Attorney General William Barr's handpicked prosecutor has found no evidence that U.S. intelligence agencies had planted spies in the Trump campaign. John Durham had been tasked with investigating the origins of the Mueller probe. Right-wing outlets have claimed falsely that a Maltese professor, Joseph Mifsud, was a spy planted by the FBI or U.S. intelligence agencies. Durham stated that this was a lie. Also, Michael Horowitz, the Department of Justice's Inspector General, concluded the FBI in fact had adequate cause to launch the Russia investigation. Karen McDougal, the Playboy model who said she had an affair with Trump, has sued Fox News for intentional defamation. McDougal, who was paid for her silence by Trump and the National Enquirer, says host Tucker Carlson falsely accused her of extortion last year. McDougal faces a high bar as a public figure, but notes in her suit that despite Trump's shifting stories about her, he has never accused her of extortion. And Trump called the House Intelligence Committee's impeachment report, quote, a joke. Everybody is saying it. Day 1051, December 6th. Trump rejected an invitation to participate in the impeachment hearings before the House Judiciary Committee. Trump called the process completely baseless and a reckless abuse of power by the Democrats who, quote, should end this inquiry now and not waste even more time with additional hearings. 
Speaking of which, more than 100 members of Congress have made 256 visits to Trump properties since he was elected. Since the impeachment inquiry was announced, 50 members of Congress have visited a Trump property. At least 122 visits were made to attend a political fundraiser or a special interest group event. Trump used unsecured cell phones to communicate with Giuliani and others involved in his campaign to pressure Ukraine. The conversations were likely monitored by foreign spies. Quote, it happened all the time. Trump is not identified by name in the phone records, but House Intelligence Committee investigators believe he is the person with a blocked number listed as negative one in their documents, subpoenaed from AT&T as part of that investigation. And Attorney General Barr claimed that communities who don't respect the police could, quote, lose the police protection they need. Day 1052, December 7th. Attorney General Barr has approved the public release of additional information about Christopher Steele. Steele, who is the former British spy who compiled a dossier in Trump, has not been given any additional details about which information the DOJ plans to release. Steele spent two days meeting with representative of the Justice Department in London to voluntarily cooperate with their probe. As a part of that, it was revealed that Steele was actually a close friend of Ivanka Trump. Despite her father's vilification of Steele, Steele was reportedly predisposed to supporting Trump. According to interview notes, Steele said the idea he was biased against Trump was ridiculous, and that if anything, he was favorably disposed toward the Trump family because he had began his research because he visited a Trump family member at Trump Tower and had been friendly with that person for some years. Steele described their relationship as personal and said that he once gifted a family tartan from Scotland to Ivanka. And Senate Republicans rammed through Sarah Pitlick's nomination to a lifetime seat on the federal judiciary. Pitlick was unanimously rated as not qualified by the American Bar Association. She is known as an extreme anti-abortion advocate who also bizarrely believes that surrogacy and fertility treatments are, quote, having grave effects on society. Day 1053, December 8th. Trump told a Jewish audience on Sunday that, quote, many American Jews don't love Israel enough and that Jews, quote, have no choice but to vote for me or else the Democrats will take 100% of your wealth away. Jewish groups immediately denounced Trump's remarks as anti-Semitic and deeply offensive. The Jewish Democratic Council of America said the remarks only reinforce our belief that Trump is the biggest threat to American Jews. The U.S. ambassador to Denmark prevented a NATO expert from speaking at an international conference because the expert had been critical of Trump on Facebook. Stanley Sloan was told the day before he was set to leave for Copenhagen that the U.S. embassy had vetoed his participation. As a result, the event was canceled altogether. Sloan said the decision had left him, quote, stunned and concerned about our country. And in a strange rant, Trump complained that water conservation laws have resulted in Americans, quote, flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. Trump further claimed the EPA was investigating the situation. Low-flow toilets have been in use since 1990. Day 1054, December 9th. A bitterly divided House Judiciary Committee delivered their impeachment case against Trump, calling the evidence overwhelming and his conduct brazen. Counsel Barry Burke said, quote, the scheme is so clear that it's hard to imagine that anybody could dispute those acts, let alone that the conduct does not constitute an impeachable offense or offenses. The House is now expected to release two articles of impeachment tomorrow. Also, the Justice Department Inspector General's report was released and concluded the Russia probe of the Trump campaign was justified. The 434-page report found the FBI had, quote, an authorized purpose when it initiated its investigation and coordination between Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. The report said also, quote, political bias or improper motivation did not influence the decisions. 
The report did criticize the procedural handling of a wiretap, but not the merits of the tap itself. Trump responded by claiming that the evidence in the report was, quote, far worse than I ever thought possible. He also lied, saying that the FBI, quote, fabricated evidence and they lied to the courts. Attorney General Barr also rejected the report, claiming it was an intrusive investigation into Trump's campaign that was based, quote, on the thinnest of suspicions that, in my view, were insufficient to justify the steps taken. That was pushed back upon strongly by FBI Director Christopher Wray, who noted the investigation was correct and proper. Barr has told Trump that Rudy Giuliani has become a liability. Barr told Trump that Giuliani was not serving him well also as his personal attorney. Trump told Barr that Giuliani wants to testify now before impeachment investigators about his recent trip to Ukraine. Trump added that Giuliani will, quote, make a report of his findings to submit to Barr in Congress. A lawsuit alleges that Trump exerted improper pressure on the Pentagon when it awarded a military cloud computing contract to Microsoft. Trump has, quote, made no secret of his personal dislike for Amazon's Jeff Bezos and his ownership of the Washington Post, blaming Bezos personally for the Post coverage of Trump. The complaint contends that Trump used his office to prevent AWS from winning that contract when he intervened directly in the very final phases of the two-year procurement process. That decision stunned observers who noted that Amazon was by far and away the industry leader. Microsoft's tender did not even meet required benchmarks for the cloud computing module. And the United States government has forcibly taken more than 1,100 children from their parents since the alleged end of Trump's family separation policy at the border. Day 1055, December 10th. The House of Representatives formally called for Trump's removal from office, saying that he ignored and injured the interests of the nation in two articles of impeachment, charging him with abusing his power and obstruction of Congress. The House Judiciary Committee is debating the articles and could vote by Thursday to recommend them to the full House for final approval. Trump could now stand trial in the Senate early in the new year. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Trump, quote, tried to corrupt our upcoming elections and that he remains a threat to democracy and our national security. Meanwhile, Trump tweeted that he did nothing wrong and that impeaching him would be an act of sheer political madness. Trump and Mitch McConnell are at loggerheads over the Senate impeachment trial. McConnell wants to end the trial as quickly as possible. Trump wants a spectacle with Hunter Biden, Adam Schiff, and the whistleblower all testifying live. In a win for Democrats, Mexico, Canada, and the United States all agreed to sign the new USMCA trade deal. Trump caved and strengthened labor, environmental, pharmaceutical, and enforcement provisions. The pact will replace the North American Free Trade Agreement. Republicans claimed bitterly the agreement had, quote, been moved totally to the left. Trump lashed out at his FBI director for not agreeing with his interpretation of a highly anticipated government watchdog report. That report, of course, found there was no bias in the opening of an investigation in connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Trump has refused to accept that, tweeting, quote, I don't know what report current director of the FBI Chris Wray was reading, but it sure wasn't the one given to me. With that kind of attitude, he will never be able to fix the FBI, which is badly broken despite having some of the greatest men and women working there. Attorney General Barr claims the FBI operated out of bad faith and clearly spied upon the Trump campaign, claiming now without evidence that the Russia probe is based on a completely bogus narrative that was largely fanned and hyped by a completely irresponsible press. In truth, Robert Mueller's investigation identified some 272 contacts between the Trump campaign team in 2016 and Russia-linked operatives. Some of those contacts have in fact never been explained. Day 1056, December 11th. Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz said that no one should view his report as vindication of FBI officials involved with aspects of the Russia investigation. 
The investigation was opened with proper predicate, sufficient predication, and it was started by someone who was found to have no connection to text that showed political bias. But members of the FBI did not follow proper protocol when going through with the investigation. That said, Horowitz said under oath at a hearing in front of Congress that he showed Barr and outside counsel John Durham a copy of the report before it was released to the public. He said they expressed their disagreement with it, but Horowitz and his team maintained that it is accurate. Horowitz said he was surprised that Dermot Barr put out a statement that did not agree with the report's conclusions. Horowitz said that, in fact, the only aspect of his reporting to the FBI inquiry into Trump under disagreement was that while the FBI opened that investigation as a full counterintelligence inquiry, outside counsel thought it should have been a preliminary investigation. Meanwhile, Trump called the FBI scum at a rally in Pennsylvania. Trump also made his now-debunked claim that the investigation into his campaign was launched by biased people in the intelligence community eager to undermine his presidency. A federal judge has placed a permanent injunction on Trump using billions of dollars from the Pentagon to pay for construction of a border wall. U.S. District Court Judge David Briones in Texas told Trump he may not use $3.6 billion in military construction funding to pay for 11 wall projects along the southern border with Mexico. He also said Trump exceeded his authority when he issued a national emergency declaration to access the money. Trump cannot appeal this decision. Trump summoned his top two health officials to a White House meeting amid reports of an escalating feud. Secretary Alex Azar and CMS Administrator Seema Verma have been at loggerheads after a report that Verma directed millions of dollars toward public relations contractors to bump up her profile and asked taxpayers to cover the cost of $47,000 in stolen jewelry during a work trip. Joe Biden may publicly promise to keep his presidency to one term. However, Biden sought to tamp down speculation, noting, quote, I'm not even there yet. On a hunting trip to Mongolia earlier this summer, Donald Trump Jr. killed a rare species of endangered sheep. A permit for the killing was retroactively issued after Trump met with that country's president. Trump released a campaign ad with his face superimposed on Marvel supervillain Thanos from the Avengers series. Thanos is a genocidal warlord bent on destroying half of existence in the universe. Oddly, the moment chosen for the Trump ad is a strange one. It is taken seconds before Thanos realizes he's about to be defeated by the Avengers. Thanos' creator Jim Starlin said, quote, It struck me that the leader of my country and the free world actually enjoys comparing himself to a mass murderer. Trump's approval rating is now 40%, according to the website 538. Only 10% of Americans believe Trump cooperated with the impeachment investigation. 50% of Americans now support impeaching and removing Trump from office, a sizable swing that followed the televised hearings. However, 56 Republicans in the Senate currently indicate they will vote to acquit him. 67 senators in all are required to remove Trump from office. These are the Trump Diaries. Mario Smith chatted with Kari B., founder of The Debauchery Ball. The Ball, now the subject of a documentary, is one of the nation's top house music festivals with a body-positive portrayal of black sexuality. News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2. You've done something with the debauchery ball that is unprecedented, I think. Talk a little bit about the debauchery For people who don't know, and how at this point you don't know is a miracle, but there are people who still don't know. Talk about the ball and talk about why it came to be. Okay. Uh, well, I, I lovingly call it the most infamous event you've never heard of. 
that, that's how I introduce it to people <laughs> who have not, who, you know, it's new to folks. And I'm like, oh, it's a lot of it. Uh, it's, just, it's the most infamous thing you've never heard of. And it's supposed to be that way. Um, because what we've done is op- uh, created this space for people of color, very specifically um, and intentionally, to come into an, a, a space and completely feel free. Feel this, 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 this feeling that we don't often get where we are completely out of the gaze of the, of the um, mass population here in the United States. We'll say it like that. Oh, I'm good at this. Yeah, you <laughs> good job. Uh, we're free of that gaze. And when we're free of that gaze, and I don't even think, think a lot of us know it, uh, know it and uh, publicly, we know it in our private spaces. I don't know if we even feel it in our private spaces, but when we're free of that gaze, we kind of just let go and relax. And we're able to interact with one another in a loving way that is almost foreign to a lot of us. Or it's something that all of us want and we don't often get. So that's, I mean, that's what it is. That's why I intentionally promote it for people of color and this is, you know, what we do, how we do it, what we do it. And it really just came, the, the, the simplest explanation is I was looking to celebrate my Earth Day and I couldn't find a party I really wanted to go to that was going to do what I, you know, make me feel the way I wanted to feel. And so I just created it. And that was that. Um, my, my man, uh, Black, Just Black, or author Yanir Moore, Black Moore, we were going to we were going to ear candies um ear candies i think they called it poetry and disco so it, it was it was after the ebony room but still on in the early days whoa whoa wait they, wait whoa whoa you dropping a name the ebony room jeez man slow down this was a big one that was years ago yeah, this was this was end of the nineties. Holy cow, the the Ebony Room! All right, I'm sorry. The Ebony Room, Ebony Room, incidentally, was my was really my first regular poetry gig. That was that, that was me just starting out hosting stuff and all of that kind of. That was that was the beginning of it all. So I remember it that after, it was after that. People thought I had been doing it for years. Evidently, I was I was okay at it, but uh, <laughs> that was the first one. So it was after that, and they were attempting to do something similar. Uh, but they would pack out the poetry part. The open mic would be, you know, full of folks. And then the music would come on, and them people would clear the hell out. Poof, gone. And it would be, <laughs> I'd say it was five of us. It was me, it was black, it was uh, a sister rhythm, and like two other dudes. And we would all take and take turns dancing with rhythm because she was the only. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Other than the people that was putting it on, you know, it was like, hey, brother, my turn. And <laughs> there was this DJ. That sounds so fan. crazy. I know, right? But Rhythm, you know, Rhythm loved it. Oh, she <laughs> gonna, of course. She going to go. She ain't, you know, that's no, she ain't no punk. She know what she doing. She ain't no punk at all. She going to get her groove on. Yeah, so she we, is. We all dancing. We all having a good time. The five of us in there, you know, and there was this DJ. He was playing who I didn't know. And I've, I've been on the house in, in, as a, a part of the house culture for, for decades, and I didn't know this guy. But he's playing, and he's beating it. He's beating it so hard that you would think it was a 1,000 people in the space. And it's five of us. A lot of DJs and a lot of performers, period. When you don't have an audience, you're like, 
you know, I'll, I'll just play. I'm going to get, get through my set and go home. But he's playing like this place is packed and we sweating. So, um, you know, it could have been a fluke the first week happened. It could have been a fluke. You know, he, he just had a good night. He came back the next time and he beat again. We get our sweat on, get our dance on a couple of hours. It's, you know, now it's four people because one of the guys was like, man, I'm not coming to the party with one, one chick in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so we all get the gear. We can't believe that this guy is like playing like this. So um, it was, I guess it was towards the end of that year. And my Earth Day was coming up. Yeah, I'm a Sagittarius. And uh, I was thinking, I was like, man, I should throw a party this year. Black was like, hell yeah, you should throw a party. Who should, you know, I know all of these DJs, who to use, who to use, who to use. And he's like, what about dude? And I was like, you right. He, is, he, he would be cold-blooded. Because people need to hear this guy. Because ain't nobody heard him but five people. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> People need to hear this dude for real. I was like, "Bet you know what? Let me let me see what's happening." So he and I got to talking, and uh, I talked to the people, uh, talked to the folks that were doing it. We at the at the uh, at the Southside Community Arts Center, historical space, right? Um, and I was like, "Yo, can we do this? Can I do this party here?" And, and uh, my guy was like, "Yeah, let's hook it up." We hooked it up. I went on. I, 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 I printed out some hand drawn flyers or whatever and spread it around town, and, like, 200 people came through that night. Wow. And that was the first, and me being me, because I'm, I'm just, I think everybody looks better in black, and, you know, I like think, you know, house culture to me has always been sexy. And I shouldn't even say to, to me. House culture has really always, it was, it was rooted in a certain uh, free sexuality. Not sex, per se. Right. The sexuality where you got to really just kind of express and, 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 and fill each other up and have a good time and go home. <laughs> but I, I encouraged that, and that's how that debauchery ball piece came through. I, I used to do a party in college called um, Dance Music Sex Romance, DSMR, off of, off of the Prince Cut. Right. And me and, me and my, uh, my, my godbrother slash roommate at the time, uh, Nkrumah, and he's from New York. We used to do these parties that we had a we had a fly crib in college. It didn't even make no sense. But uh, <laughs> so we would do these occasional parties, and I named it that. So this time I put this name. I was looking for a name, and I came up with Debauchery Ball because that's how I wanted people to feel coming into the space because house, house parties at the time were taking a decline, and they was just, it, was getting, it was getting lame. And I was like, nah, I need this to be what I, I know house culture is. I know house music to be. Nicole Amin played her Motown-inflected R&B in Studio A for a John Daly session. Off her forthcoming LP, this is Easy For You To Say. It was engineered by Ari Shellist. me 
Our new normal is currently uh, living living aboard as much as possible this barge because it was a huge investment for us. We both had to sell our our homes. Well, I I also had to sell a squab farm, but that's already been detailed yeah. quite a bit. So I let's mean, not get into it. That's not. Well, sell it will never come up again. Sell sell is more of a, is a stronger term than I would use um, because it was more of a trade. Sure, but let's uh, not get into it. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we are on a news barge, a um, very old uh, Soviet-era news barge, mm-hmm. as it would seem. A real fixer-upper, as they might say. Right. Uh, it is... But we've both logged thousands of hours, I think, at this point, just working the barge, 
figuring out how the controls work. There was a lot of controls. You wouldn't believe the number of buttons on a Soviet ship. And and they are not in English, so it only <laughs> compounds the issue. No, but they don't didn't seem to be in Russian either. It's very confusing. We we are also experiencing a minor um, issue with the amount of water sure. um, that is in. So if one of us has to jump out to bail the ship out a tiny bit, uh, don't be surprised. Mm-hmm. We're still working and on it. by bail, we mean we take bales and we dump the water from inside the ship to outside the ship yes it's not the rudders also i've tried to make the rudder work but the rudders just doesn't seem to be working so we are currently sitting we don't really move it's more of a barge that moves as the waves do we're moored perhaps sure in Uh, the middle of the lake uh it it is we we don't need to go into this any further um so you might you might be wondering dear listener um why precisely we have decided it was necessary we decided it was necessary to go through with this yes um and all the issue of uh rebranding getting a new intro uh moving from uh the what now is uh considered uh quite warm by comparison wlpn studio who can we thank for the intro uh, DF. Uh, a, a, a young up-and-coming DJ by the name of Jeremiah Meese. Thank you very much Thank for that. Thank you, Meese. I love your dad's buildings. <laughs> um, but no, there was some there was some serious issues with the Are We Cool Yet uh, name primarily. Um, there were, and we'll probably we'll probably get more into this as we go on, as we talk more about it, I, as we I, reflect. I, I think suffice it to say, um, between moving from WIIT to WLPN, the civic tech was involved. There was a lot of yeah. there was a, a very complicated um, spider web of trademarks, copyrights, and blood packs sure. um, that just the, – the intellectual property of the Are We Cool Yet brand as such um, was so mired mm-hmm. in this. My we, credit is in the tank. W- the only way that we could possibly as um, as broadcasters get out from under this, this uh, headache that we had created for ourselves mm-hmm. was to just start fresh. Sure. Own our capital. Um, And and by that, I mean cut and run and (laughs) go into Lake Michigan, where um, things like copyright law are uh, unenforceable, I believe. Uh, It's impossible to enforce them. The FCC does not have boats that I know of, so I would challenge (laughs) them. Not since the the cut, the pay cut. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.